0: Okay, well, good morning, everybody. I am, well, that was not very good. Let's do that again. Good morning, everybody. Awesome, I am so excited that you guys are here with me this early in the morning. I thought I'd end up with like two people, myself and the other speaker, and that was it. So thank you guys for coming out. Uh, We are really excited to talk today about the future of IT. My name is Sandy Carter, and I'm a vice president here with Amazon Web Services, and I focus in on enterprise workloads which means I help companies uh, migrate over their Microsoft workloads, SAP, IBM, any of the larger enterprise-type workloads. Um, I've been here for about two years, and before that I was a um, startup founder in Silicon Valley, and my company focused on innovation and culture. Uh, We built a couple of machine learning models to see how we could integrate those together based on some research from Carnegie Mellon Silicon Valley where I was an adjunct professor. And then before that, I worked at um, IBM. I managed the um, ecosystem there for Watson, which was our machine learning models. So you can see most of my history and background is around innovation and the future. Where are things going? Now here, very shortly, I'll be joined on stage by Bridget Fry, who is the CTO of Redfin. Uh, You guys may know Redfin as being a big disruptor of the real estate business. Uh, And not only is the company a disruptor, but Bridget herself is an amazing CTO, an amazing leader, because not only is she impacting IT, but part of the future of IT is that your, your influence as being part of IT is much broader, and she definitely has that wider influence as well. So she'll be joining me up on stage too. I don't know if we'll have time for questions at the end, so I've included both of our Twitter handles here. If you tweet either of us questions, either before the session or after the session, we'll also make sure that we, uh, we get back to you. So when we started talking about the future of IT, uh, one of the things we were talking about is how much change is going on in the world. And I love this because in 1998, you know, my parents told me, don't ever get in the car with strangers. And then in 2008, when Match.com became really popular, people said, don't meet people on the internet alone. But today, Uber says, hey, order a car from a stranger uh, from the internet and get in that car alone. Who would have thought back in 1998 that that is what we would be saying? And think about all the change that goes behind that. And that's what we see enterprises facing today is a lot of this change that is upon us. Um, Customer expectations change, just like the example I showed you with Uber. Uh, sometimes it's all about you know, privacy and protection. Sometimes it is something broader or different, an easier way to do something. We also see a lot of lower barriers to entry. So um, I just told you I was a startup CEO. If I had been a startup CEO 10 years ago, I would have spent 90% of my venture Capital funding on hardware and software, basically technology. Today, on average, startups spend less than 20% of their funding on technology, even though tech is more important to companies because of the cloud and because of all the changes going on. So there's lower barriers to entry, which means that there's higher chances for disruption. And then, of course, there's just a lot of change going on in the market today. Uh, You can't predict it, just like that Uber example I showed you. You never know when or how things are going to change, so you have to be ready to be able to adopt to that change at a moment's notice. Because all of that change is happening, we're seeing that the CEOs of companies and CIOs are now experiencing a lot of pressure. So for instance, 90%, think about this, 90% of CEOs believe that their industry will be disrupted in the next year. And only 15% of them believe that they'll be ready and the number one thing they believe is their impediment is technology, is IT. 67% of all companies say they have to pick up the pace. Number one area that pace needs to be picked up in is IT. Constantly quoting that 80% of what is spent today on IT is spent on maintenance, not on those new innovation projects. And then last but not least, but 47, almost 50% of CEOs Say they're being challenged by their board around what is their new digital disruption strategy. And of course, that is based on IT. So with all of this change happening and occurring uh, today in the world, we know that um, you've gotta do something. Of course, you guys are not this company that's sitting there saying something magical is gonna happen because you're in this room today. But a lot of companies will think, well, if I just ignore it, it'll go away and of course, it won't. So we see change happening in four different places. Um, Primarily, this is where we see the impact of IT. One is on the actual product that you bring to market. This is where most people talk about disruption, right? I had a new product come to market. But if you look at most of the new startups that have disrupted industries, like think Airbnb, wasn't really around the product, it was around other areas of change. So think about operational excellence, Uh, robotics. You know, we just made the announcement about the development community for robotic developers on um, Monday night. So how do you bring in robotics to help you with operational excellence? Customer experience. Uh, There was just a report that was published that said, most chief marketing officers are looking for AI to improve their customer experience, but they don't believe that can be done through their IT departments. They think they need to go out and purchase something off the shelf. So how do you improve that customer experience? How do you impact that with IT? And then finally, business model change. Um, and we think there you know, about what's happening with Airbnb, with Pinterest, with others who are changing that business model all of those business model changes have an element of IT that's embedded in it as well. So if you think about all these things happening, if you're the CIO or if you're an IT director, you've got all these things coming at you, right? Um, so you know, containers first, cloud first, you've gotta change your culture. There's so many things that will impact you and impact the future. So what we wanted to do in this presentation is we've been looking at thousands of companies, and we looked at patterns and anti-patterns. Although the marketing team thought that was too complex, so we're going to do old IT and new IT. But really, we're talking about patterns and anti-patterns. What do those new patterns look like? We actually came up with a list of 20. I'm going to share six today. And then Bridget from um, Redfin was going to come up and show you how those patterns are going to be put in motion, how those patterns are going to be used today. Um, and acting like an open API, she's gonna share all that learning with you around those six areas. Now, I will warn you that as we go through these six, not all are strictly IT. Um, Some of them have to do with your approach to IT. So some of them will have to do directly with what we consider technology, but some of them are broader than that. So the first one we're gonna talk about today is old IT being the big bang going to more of a continuous innovation motion. And that'll have two elements to it, a culture element and a technology element that we'll talk about. Our second trend we're gonna talk about is a project-based approach versus a product-based approach. Um, I was just at the Gartner IT Expo for CIOs. Um, This was in their top three future of IT changes for IT. So this was also um, commented on by them as well. Number three is on how you approach training and learning with change occurring so much faster, lower barriers to entry, this particular area, while not directly, just about tech is really crucial. How do you do your training for your teams? Number four is on being agile and then some of those new application modernization areas and I'll give you some stats on how people are using those and what they're doing. Number five is on security. As you know, security is critical to AWS. Andy likes to say it's priority zero because it's before anything else we do. But with the change in the climate, we just watched privacy has now elevated in customer trust, how you earn trust with your customers. So it's really elevated in everybody's stage, including your CIO. And then last but not least is one of my favorites, which I think Bridget really excels at, which is IT as a contractor versus IT as a business partner. Um, in fact, it was really interesting, yesterday I was with a, CIO, with a CIO round table and everybody was going around saying, I'm the CIO of this company, I'm the CIO of this company. One gentleman said, I am the business leader of this company who happens to focus on IT. I thought that was really interesting of how he saw his role and I'm sure how he impacts that role as well. So we're gonna go through each of these six today. Is that good, everybody set with that? Uh, And then we'll bring Bridget up and she's gonna kind of pull it all together and show you how she implements these six new patterns for IT. So we're gonna start first with uh, what we call the Big Bang. And I see this a lot uh, where a company will come in and says, we've got our vision 2.0. And it's a major strategic shift for IT. Typically it's built on what the enterprise can bring to the table versus a lot of times what companies and customers are looking for. Um, It has a finite date for improvement. And while you're working on this big Vision 2.0, you're going to a lot of meetings, you're doing a lot of discussions, everything else gets put on hold. So a lot of the stuff that you really needed to do to run the business is stopped. Now, I contrast that to the new pattern for IT, not just waiting to the end, not waiting for the big bang. Um, And I'll give you a personal story. So this is um, a pancake, of course. So I do pancakes with my daughters every Sunday. And one Sunday, my daughter said, Mom, would you make us this pancake? We got this picture off of Pinterest. And what did I say? I said, of course. How, How hard could that be to make that pancake? And so I made the pancake. Um, And what I learned was that I tried to do this big bang approach, right? I didn't notice that the pancake on the left was a perfectly formed circle. And I didn't go out and get all the tools and all the training that I needed to create that perfect circle. So instead of doing things in pieces and iterating on them and experimenting, I did it big bang all at one time. So my second and my third try were much better, but I learned a lot about the way experimentation helps us. And so that's our first big new pattern, which is on rapid series innovation. So how do you meet the market, but you need to do it in a very quick way because changes are occurring, customers are changing their minds, so you've gotta be able to move quickly. Uh, When I ran my startup, I didn't just build my product. I built an MVP, a minimum viable product, tested that out, uh, leveraged it with customers, and then tweak that as I went along, you know, sometimes patterning for my top three customers, sometimes looking at the long tail. So how do you get to this rapid innovation where you're going to win customers every day, where you're gonna start with a small team though? You're gonna look at a small investment, you're gonna do a small slice of value. Much like with my pancake example, not doing the whole thing at one time, figuring out what tools you need to create the right solution for your customers. Um, At Amazon, we call these small teams two pizza teams. Now this is a culture piece of the rapid innovation that I believe that IT organizations also need to look at. So for us, I have an engineering team and I have a product management team. Um, For engineering, we do two pizza-sized teams. They're small teams, they're like small startups. They're autonomous, they own The solution. They're single threaded. They can make the decisions. It's very different than having one, you know, a huge team that's building one monolithic thing, having a smaller team that feels empowered, that feels like it's their particular idea, invention. They're builders, they're gonna build for that. So I think one of the first big new patterns we're seeing is not huge teams but smaller, two-pizza-sized teams. And two-pizza-sized teams just means that one team, if they can eat more than two pizzas, your team is now too big. So I guess if you have a lot of skinny people, you can have a larger team. But along with this cultural area, we're seeing companies do this really well. Um, Netflix, I was um, speaking with Dave from the Netflix team, and he told me about how they evolved culturally. Um, you know, if you, a lot of us don't remember that Netflix isn't the, wasn't the streaming media success that it is today. They started by mailing DVDs. And all of these elements were supported by IT, but they were smaller steps, rapid continuous motions, rapid continuous innovation as they move along. They could never have gone just from mailing DVDs to streaming video in one fell swoop. They really needed to be able to do that in a series of steps. And he explained to me that that took culture changes in the way they said, you know, we're only going to use a service-led model. We're going to use smaller teams as well as a technology um, example. So we're going to talk here in a second about microservices and how microservices blended with this culture really creates this new pattern. I looked back at Netflix. Netflix back in 2012 was really talking about microservices and how microservices could have an impact on their business far before anybody else, coupling that technology and that culture together. So the second part of this particular pattern is the technology piece, which is around the use of microservices. Um, Now I did some research on this and it showed that 89% of companies want to move to microservices over the next three years. So if you're already there, you're ahead of the pack. Uh, If you haven't started looking at it, then you're behind the pack. So what's the difference? Well, if you're um, looking at monolithic applications, and if you're sitting there thinking no one does that, trust me, I was with a company last night who built a humongous monolithic 8.7 million lines of code application who now wants to break it into a set of microservices. So a monolithic application does everything. It's uh, very rigid because it's hard to adapt and hard to change, it's hard to take new technologies on. The new pattern is around leveraging microservices. Microservice does really one thing really well. Uh, You have your choice of technology. It's independent scaling, independent dependencies really makes the ability of you to move rapidly really, really uh, possible on the technology side. Now, um, I actually wrote a book on service-oriented architecture a couple years ago, so I've had a lot of people ask me questions about it. So very quickly, on the left-hand side would be your monolithic application. Still could be one component, like you could consider it one major component. In the middle, I would say that's more like service-oriented architecture. When we talked about service-oriented architecture, it was really very coarse, not finely grained components. And then on the right would be a set of microservices. So we're evolving as we go. Just like we're talking about change, we're evolving as we go. Now, I added this in because I was asked on Sunday, I was doing a talk uh, to a a roundtable of CIOs, and they said, well, isn't a microservice just an API? So it's not. An API is an interface. Uh, Microservices are components. So a, a microservice actually could have multiple APIs that are exposed through that microservice. And so when you actually took a, take a monolithic application, you break it into a set of microservices, you may be actually exposing the same number of APIs. You don't have to, it's not an equal thing, one to one. So as we're looking at microservices, the value here, combining the culture plus the technology is when you're developing a monolithic application, um, your development team is a large team because they're all inputting into a single component. Typically they're doing the waterfall methodology, typically not true DevOps. But when you're doing a set of microservices, now you've got smaller teams of developers. These microservices are their own little unit that they can own and drive, deploy it independently. And we'll talk later about how you could orchestrate and leverage a workflow around those microservices as well. We believe that this is really a crucial change in the pattern versus an anti-pattern, coupling the technology with the culture. Now, one example of a company who's done that is a company called ZocDoc. They were started in New York City. Think about them as kind of like the kayak for booking a doctor's appointment. Um, I didn't know this, but on average, it takes you 24 days to book a doctor's appointment. Uh, When you go back and forth, and you might change your schedule, 30% of us actually cancel our appointments or change the appointments, which also wastes doctor's time, but also is annoying for us too, right? To have to rebook that. So ZocDoc has taken this problem on, but when they started, they built a large monolithic application. It happened to be a .NET application. It was on-premises. Their growth has been phenomenal. So in order for them to scale and to really leverage the impact of their engineers, They've now taken that monolithic single component application and they've broken it into a set of microservices. They've actually containerized it because it's faster and you can actually do multiple, uh, have multiple applications containerized. So now that they can scale on the cloud. Um, They just told me that they're achieving three times the engineering output based on that. They're doing about six million visitors a month now and they've taken the appointment booking time from 24 days down to 24 hours. If you haven't used it, you should really try it out. But what I really love is that they've really changed their culture to a set of small teams and their technology to a set of microservices. So that's our first uh, pattern that we have. So my question for you and the audience is, um, what are you doing today as the CIO, as the IT director, as the chief architect What are you doing to drive culture change and that technology change for this particular new IT pattern? Our second area is around project-oriented viewpoint and product-oriented viewpoint. So, you know, most product strategies are just a laundry list of requirements. And most IT departments today break those laundry list of requirements into a set of projects. So we end up with a lot of project managers, um, a lot of people PMI certified, and these projects, they have predefined requirements, but it's not a scope looking at the whole breadth of a product, but looking at a scope of a project. It has a schedule to it, so it has an end date, and the measurements are things like maybe how many lines of code, or how many uh, SEV1 defects do you have, Very technology-oriented. But as we look at the new pattern, um, we're talking about product management. Um, And product management is looking at continuous development. They're looking at working backwards from the customer, and therefore, the requirements are gonna be constantly changing. It's not gonna be just looking at a tech project, but looking at a set of changing requirements from a customer. And you're gonna measure this not just by output, but also by outcomes. And so they're gonna be business oriented. The product management team will pull together people from legal, will pull together people from marketing, we will pull together people across the board to really deliver a complete package to their customer. So one of the examples that I love, and this is a non-tech example, but this is a true jerky. Anybody eat true jerky? So they were very project-oriented. They were focused on the jerky itself. Um, They switched to a product-oriented view, so they started looking at everything that surrounded the jerky as well, the packaging and what customers were saying about what happened after you use the product. So one of the number one things that people said was, I get jerky stuck in my teeth. So looking at this from a product perspective, what they did is they actually included dental floss can see it right there in the package for the jerky. Increased sales by 40%, not making a change to the, to the product of jerky, but making a change to the overall outcome. And that's really what we're looking at here from a product management viewpoint. Um, there are really five kind of areas of competency for product managers. Um, the first is you could really, uh, and you could have multiple of these. These are not sequential. Um, But the first one is really how a startup begins, right? They're instant driven. Typically, the CEO is the chief product officer. He or she really understands the customer well and can articulate those. But as a company grows, you need to look at some of the others. Uh, Requirements focus, where you're gathering requirements from customers and putting those into an engineering plan. Whether you're looking at the customer experience Much like the example I gave you for Jerky, what's the entire experience that the customer sees? Uh, Pillar number four is about a market focus. So how do you think the market is going to change? Not just the product, but the market. And then number five is setting forth a set of strategic initiatives and then having the product team make sure that what they're working on matches with those strategic initiatives. So as you're looking at this, the product manager then becomes the champion of the customer. He or she is representing that customer, not representing the project, but the customer themselves. And therefore, they are customer obsessed. They um, work backwards from the customer. So they don't say, we're gonna do an ML project. Let's figure out what we can do with it. They say, we have a customer need. How do we meet that need? It may involve ML, but it may not. Um, they focus more on what the customer has to say versus what the competitors are doing. So I know a lot of people as they're looking at projects, they really focus and hone in on that, on that competitor. But this is really about honing and focusing in on the c- customer. So these are some stats from Gartner that I had approval to use. Um, they say that 85% of all companies over the next five years we will move from a project viewpoint to a product viewpoint for success. And if they look at it today, they look at their top performers, 78% of them are already doing product management versus project management. So it's a difference in focus. And so their conclusion is that if you're looking at this from a product perspective, you're gonna drive higher success. Uh, McDonald's is someone who has switched over from this project viewpoint to a product viewpoint. Um, I love this story because they were looking at building, um, they didn't know what they were gonna do, but they wanted to be able to deliver uh, to different people's homes and businesses food. So the product manager defined a home delivery platform uh, as an overall concept, and as they laid this out, they decided they were gonna work backwards from the customer. They use microservices and small teams, so kind of partnering with that pattern number one. And using that, they now took four months to build the platform. They're doing 20,000 orders a second. And as I talked to them, they said that if they had done this on a project viewpoint, the time frame would have been longer, and they probably would not be really looking at the customer success that they have today. So the question I have for you is, have you thought Because most product management teams sit within engineering. So I have an engineering team. Inside of my engineering team, I have a product management team. So as part of IT, have you thought about how you will develop, train, and hire product managers? Um, Forrester says that product managers will be one of the harder skills to find over the next three to four years as companies are really adapting to this new viewpoint as we move forward. So our next uh, anti-pattern, or old IT, is around training. Um, And this one's really interesting, too, because um, we see a lot of companies that kind of starve their IT departments for training on technology and new techniques. Uh, In fact, in one of the CIO roundtables that we were hosting, a lot of them uh, asked us for the ROI of coming to reInvent, how do you measure the business impact of it, because I have to justify sending my team to reInvent. Now many of you aren't in that situation, uh, in fact last night I sat next to Liberty Mutual, they have like 110 people here, because they focused on the new pattern, not the old pattern. Um, and then, you know, just training for specific groups. So our, the new pattern here is really around training as a journey, and training really for everyone. Um, this is an example of using a phased approach where you're looking at, maybe you're taking cloud for the first time or containers for the first time. You're gonna look at training everybody and then figuring out what specific training different personas in your organization need. So if I'm an architect, I may need to be trained differently than if I am a developer or a tester in that organization. So looking at this training as a phased approach versus as a one-time hit or miss or I have to justify it via an ROI. And one of my favorite companies who does this really well is Capital One. So back in 2000, I think it was 2010, they decided, you know what, we're going to look at the future of our business, and the future of our business is going to be digital banking. It's not where we are today, it's going to be all digitized. So in order for us to meet that, we have to have the future of IT. We've got to think differently about IT. And so one of the very first things they did is as they laid out their business plan, they also looked at what did they need to change from an IT perspective. Um, And so this is a year-long education program that they went through. They went from 1,400 people being trained on cloud and containers and serverless to doing really deep dives and architectural training for 25 people who were gonna serve as the cloud center of excellence or that cloud tiger team. And not only did they see Tremendous uh, faster innovation, but also these modern IT career paths, which many of you tell me you model after What Capital One has done for their uh, IT career paths? So the research shows that if you are focused on IT training That you are much more effective, but also your teams stay as well. They're incented to stay. They want to stay So, this particular report shows that there's 78% more likely to stay with you and your team if you really provide them with that that, uh, solid training as well. So, my question for you is what have you done to cultivate that talent in your organization? How are you leveraging training as one of the new future of IT areas? Um, Our next area is the kind of the non-Agile approach looking at the waterfall methodology, um, looking still developing monolithic applications, not really embracing some of the new technology. Now I know here at this conference, there are tons of people that are looking at this new IT. And we really see three major trends from a tech perspective. One is around serverless. So really um, having the cloud provider look at the machine learning and really paying only for that application usage we know that Ancestry is doing this today, for instance, very well as they're adapting to new IT. Um, the second is machine learning. How do you leverage this machine learning? Um, Just Eat is leveraging machine learning in multiple areas today, driving Alexa with even uh, SQL database data. And then containers. So we talked about ZocDoc earlier. Um, you know, How do you leverage containers? We consider this kind of the triad of the new tech. In fact, uh, if you heard yesterday, many people say talking about cloud first is kind of old school, but talking about containers first or serverless first, that's really where you wanna be. So um, as you're looking at these, you know, if you're looking at serverless, you're looking at how how do you now have the machines being managed by someone else? You're looking at paying just for what the application uses. You're looking for something that's highly available. And so if you look at serverless, um, I run my engineering team based on serverless today as well. Um, We use AWS Step Functions and we do that so that we can orchestrate um, the flow of our serverless components. Uh, And as we go through and we do that, first of all, our teams are much more productive. They're about three times more productive not using serverless. They are also able to do a lot of work without patching They can roll out to different regions faster. There's so many great benefits from leveraging and using um, serverless, so we run our business on this today. This is part of my, uh, my engineering team. The second in the triad is around containers. So containers can be used for microservices. If you run your microservices in containers, they're much faster, much more effective and efficient. Um, And you can also containerize some of those old monolithic applications. Yesterday I talked to a company that had containerized 1.3 million lines of Windows 2003 code, running that in the cloud. So it can really help you to accelerate your development and your deployment. Um, And here, a great company that's doing this today is um, MyTech, who uses ML, uh, machine learning and AI to do identification and verification of mobile apps. And what they've been able to do is to completely containerize their, um, their applications, reducing their deployment time down. And the last one is ML. Oh, I forgot. We do have leadership in containers today. I don't know if you guys have been looking at this, but 63% of all container workloads are run on AWS. 51% of all Kubernetes today is run on AWS, showing that you guys are actually leaders in this space of adopting some of these new technologies. And then ML is the next big trend uh, in the future of IT. How are you uh, getting data and taking that data for insight and then using it to train your applications? Those learning modules are really important and the way that you train them is very crucial. So how do you leverage those um, throughout as well? So this is another example from my engineering team. Uh, We were actually focused on how do we help customers find .NET errors and SQL errors, so we studied a lot of data that we had on um, issues with high CPU or uh, memory pressure, and we actually used SageMaker, and we loaded those up and we trained a whole set of learning modules. We did a preview for you guys, so you guys could also help us to train those learning modules. And you're gonna see several of our new CloudWatch formation templates will be based on some of that machine learning as well. So we believe that um, these are some of the brand new trends and areas that you need to be looking at as the future of IT. And 40% of all development by 2020 will have an AI component in it. So it's something everybody needs to be looking at and driving. So my question for you is, What have you done to drive that application modernization in your business? Okay, so these last two areas, um, the next one's on security. How do you view security, especially with some of the changing perceptions in the marketplace? Are you doing bolt-on security, which is the old IT pattern, or not really understanding the implications? Uh, The new IT pattern is really gonna be around creating security working groups where you're defining best practices. Best practices not just for the cloud, but also for hybrid. Where every secure, every engineer owns security and it's built in from the beginning. And hopefully that you're using the cloud as part of that new pattern because the cloud has so much security built in from the hardware all the way up. And one of the new things that we're seeing are some of the new areas um, around security like um, AWS Private Link. So, Snowflake, one of our business partners, really needed a secure line or secure connection for a lot of their regulatory customers, like HIPAA compliant customers or PCI customers. So, they're now using Private Link as they're connecting to these top customers in the market. Just shows you that a lot of this security can be built in, and as you're looking at the new security products, this is something that should be considered. So my question is, what mechanisms have you developed for those security uh, best practices today? And then our last pattern is around IT as a contracted service, which is the old pattern that we see happening today. Um, Our new pattern is IT as a partner in the business. um, Using a lot of these new technologies, containers and cloud, where we see that you get significant savings to that maintenance problem, that you can now put into innovation. Uh, One of the examples I wanted to use here is Just Eat. They are a $5 billion startup, if you would. They're based in the UK. And one of the things their CIO has done to partner here um, is they're really obsessed, their IT department is really obsessed with not just being IT, but impacting every part of the business. Um, today they deliver food, they have 19 million customers, they, they have 78,000 restaurants there in Europe, they just came to Canada. So that partnership they believe is part of their secret of success. Um, one of the things they did partnering with marketing is as they were migrating over and containerizing some of their old SQL applications in the cloud, they were able to use that data to train machine learning models. And here is a really cool example. So now you can go to Alexa and you can say, Alexa, order pizza. It'll know what pizza I like. Um, You can say, Alexa, order sushi. It knows I'm impatient, won't wait 45 minutes. So it'll say, well, Sandy, that'll take an hour, so why not have Mexican tonight? Very uh, strong partnership across the board. And this is just some of the examples of what they've done with sales, looking at how they're doing their research. They're partnering with marketing on their UX. Um, They partner with their chief digital officer on hackathons. So this is really showcasing the way that IT can have a broader role in what we're seeing as part of that future of IT. So my question for you is how will you drive a seat to the table and some of those dollars that you need for innovation? So I've just gone through a whole set of changes, and change, I said, is everywhere. Right now chocolate's good for you and you can't eat lettuce. Who knew, right? I've been waiting my whole life for this day. Um, But now to see these patterns in action, what I'd love to do is to bring up Bridget to come and talk about how they're doing this at Redfin. Please give her a big round of applause.
1: Thank you. So Redfin is a technology-powered real estate brokerage. And from day one, our mission has been to redefine real estate in the consumer's favor. And back then we knew that real estate was a huge market with more than $75 billion in fees at stake every year. And we had lots of ideas for how technology could make this process better. But what we had no clue about was which of those ideas were gonna turn out to be good ideas, ideas that really made a difference for our customers. And so over the years, we've set up our company, our processes, our architecture so that we could really quickly go through all of those ideas, find the best ones, and then bring innovations to our customers. And so today, I'd like to walk you through some stories of how we've used some of these patterns that Sandy talked about at Redfin. And so let's start off by talking about rapid series innovations. This is the idea that in old IT, you would kind of work on these big bang moments to get this whole product out to a customer all at once. But today, you really need to set up yourself to quickly iterate, to to rapidly iterate and work on an innovation over time. So one of the stories we have for this is our work on the Redfin Estimate. The Redfin Estimate is our technology for predicting what a home will sell for. And this is something that took us many years to start building, and one of the reasons for that is that this algorithm is really critical in real estate. So we have real estate agents who are employees of Redfin. They walk into a customer's home, they walk into their living room, and their job is to help that customer understand what their home is worth, and that can be a very emotional process. It's a very important process. And so we knew that we couldn't just build an estimate that was kind of okay. We were going to have to go from having no estimate algorithm to a really, really good home value estimate. In fact, our goal was to have the most accurate online home value estimate. So how did we get started? Well, the first thing that we started looking at was our data. We have a massive amount of data in real estate. It's information about homes and properties and regions and schools. There's there's so much that can go into the pricing a home. And so in order to set this up, we took our data and we moved it into AWS and we started setting up our first machine learning architecture. So this is the basic architecture that we have in place today and it has a batch processing pipeline, so we take our information about properties and homes for sale, and we pass that through S3 and then to EMR. We also have a real-time architecture, a streaming architecture, because we have people who are using our website and our apps, they're going on tours, they're making offers on homes, and we wanna make sure that our algorithm can adjust as we see that interest from people on different homes and so that's processing through kinesis and then to lambda the output of this algorithm is published to DynamoDB, and then that's where our website our mobile applications can pick up the results can pick up those estimates and then get them over to our customers and so by moving this into this machine learning architecture it kind of broke up the problem into pieces we were able to have engineers work on different pieces of the problem What's interesting about this is that this architecture with the scale of data that we have, it actually would have been cost prohibitive for us just a few years ago. So this is kind of a funny story. When we first started working on this, we, we were testing our algorithm over a long period of time and we finally felt like we had it right and we were able to, we were ready to turn this thing on full blast and build out an estimate for every home in America. And so, of course, we decided to turn this on late at night. That's when cloud computing costs are a little less expensive. So it's 11 p.m. We're in the office, and we're ready. We push that button. And then everything seems like it's going perfectly. We've got all the graphs are going. We see all these estimates are populating. And then the phone rings. All right, so it's, it's 11 o'clock at night. Like, Who's calling our, our desk phone at 11 o'clock at night? So we pick it up. Hello? Uh, it's AWS. And AWS says, would you mind turning off that algorithm? It seems like you're actually sucking up all of the compute resources in the Oregon US West uh, data center. So uh, it's, it's hard to imagine that happening these days. I think Amazon's added one or two servers to that data center and the time in between, but it just shows you that when you move your architecture into the cloud, when you take advantage of something like what AS, AWS has to offer, you can really innovate with the latest and greatest, with the, the, the most computing power that you can easily get your hands on. And so we feel like it, by, by moving this to AWS, it really set us up for that rapid series innovation. But there's one other piece to this. So when we first built the the, the system, it was really very machine-driven, but remember, we still have that real estate agent. We still have these human beings who are walking into homes. And a a human real estate agent is better at estimating the value of a home. The reason for that is that that agent can often get more information than what the machine has. They might see that there's a renovation that's happened. They might see that there's a repair that needs to be made. So when we have people walking into homes, we want to have some kind of feedback loop. We want to see how agents view the problem. And so we had to build the estimate so that it explained itself. The estimate doesn't just put out a number. It actually says, here's the homes that this is based on. and the agent has a way to actually adjust that. They can choose different homes that they think are more similar, and those things kind of feed into each other. And so because we we'd built the architecture the way we did, we were able to put humans into the loop. And so because we, we, we set up the architecture this way, because we added humans into the loop, I'm proud to say that today the Redfin estimate is in fact the most accurate online home value estimate. It's more than twice as likely to be within 3% of the final listing price. And a lot of it I think is because we followed this rapid series innovation pattern. So, next we have this idea of setting up product teams. So, as we were getting the estimate going, we were realizing that we were going to have to set up more of these cross functional product teams, that our, our success was going to be dependent on getting real estate agents and software engineers to work together. So, we started having these cross functional uh, product teams, and they were hungry for data. One of the first things that these teams wanted to do was go and get their hands on data. And back then, so this is going back maybe eight years, We just hadn't set it up so that you could get access to that data. We had this one engineer, this one poor engineer, who was the only one who knew how to run queries on our big data sets. And he was just overwhelmed. There was a line out the door, and he couldn't keep up with what was going on. So I actually joined Redfin to work on this problem, to found our analytics engineering team, and to try to make sense of this data, to organize it and make it more accessible. And that led to really an explosion of teams being able to make use of data in their algorithms. Today we have many algorithms beyond the Redfin estimate. We can predict how likely a home is to sell at all. We can make recommendations to people about homes that they might not have seen any other way. But at the same time, we were also trying to scale out innovation itself. It wasn't just about making the data available. We were trying to get more people to be set up to innovate at the company. Back in the early days, we'd kind of fallen into this pattern. I don't know if it was based on kind of this, this Steve Jobs or Elon Musk model where you have kind of one person or a couple of people at the top, and the ideas trickle down from there. So a lot of ideas back then would come from some of the executives or, or early employees at the company. We were just getting too big for that and we wanted to follow this other model where we set up product teams so that they could innovate on their own and so they they we kind of separated out our business we assigned product teams to each part of the business and we said all right go ahead and you know build out your ideas and write a document and come back and present them to the executive team so teams went off they worked on that they come back and one of the first teams comes in and they're so excited to present what they've worked on so they start presenting it, and then an executive leans forward, and he asks just a single question. It was a question about one of the key metrics of our business and how these ideas were going to impact that metric. And the whole idea just fell apart. You could see their faces fall. They had worked so hard on this. But the thing is that they hadn't used data to test their ideas. We hadn't done enough to really, we'd we'd made the data accessible, but we hadn't done that final mile of really making sure everyone understood how to use that data. And so since then, we've invested in things like reusable reports, identifying our key metrics, being clear about who owns what and how all those things interact. And now that we've set that up, we're finding that the product teams are coming up with ideas that are better than the executive team, because they're really able to go deep and understand all of their business. But maybe it's no surprise, you know, just as we were kind of working on having these product teams that could be set off, set free to go and work on their own thing, we started getting more demand for modernizing our application, for separating out the architecture into different pieces so that teams weren't stepping on each other's toes. And so over the years, this is still something that's in process for us, as I expect it may be for many of you. But we've been looking for ways to separate out our architecture. So we've built, for example, a build, test, and deploy architecture. So this is also running in AWS. So back in the early days, all of this would run on an engineer's machine. But today, as someone is coding, they're checking in code. They're they're making a commit. That's triggering a build in the cloud. All these VMs are starting and running tests so that we can find flaws before they make it into the code base. And so by setting this up, we're we're allowing these teams to operate a little more independently. We can say that one team working over here won't impact the work of someone over here. We're also right now working on a containerization strategy, which, like Sandy mentioned, many companies are working on. It'll probably be based on Kubernetes, but that's a work in progress for us as well. But there is really one major downside to going towards more componentization, and that's that as every engineering team takes responsibility for their code, they all make changes they they all kind of approach things in a slightly different They might bring in a new technology. They might make a different choice from the next team. And that means that your architecture becomes less homogeneous, and you are actually increasing the surface area of your architecture. That can expose you to security risk. And so we've really had to embed security into all of our processes. So one of the first things we did is we set up a security working group, where we have about 250 people on our tech team. And we pulled engineers from different areas to work on defining a backlog for security. And many of those engineers will dive in and work on things that require code or process as well. But you can't trust security to a working group. You have to make it clear that every engineer owns security. So the next thing that we've done is we've set up training. We have kind of online, hands-on training modules that all of our engineers go through on how to build secure code. And we use examples from our code base so that people understand the, the ramifications of how they choose to build their code but you can't trust security to humans either. You have to actually build it into your systems. And so we've built that into our build process, our test process. We have tests looking for common security scenarios. And then once the code is deployed, we also work with third party security penetration vendors who are looking at our code from the outside and trying to find ways that we can improve our security further. But the last place is just that if you you put your architecture in the cloud, you can take advantage of some of the the latest and greatest security practices out there. I mean, some of the best minds in engineering are working on how to secure the cloud. There's a whole track at reInvent this week about how to secure things. And so if you put your architecture there, you can take advantage of everything that's pre-built into the cloud. You can take advantage of other best practices as well. But one of the really interesting things about, kind of as we've gone through this transformation is that we've really seen engineering become more of a true partner to the business. We're not just being asked to go build things, we're actually working side by side. And that's extended, not just for things we're working on for our customers, but also things we're working on internally. We've seen this trend where engineers are asking for more transparency. You see this uh, with with some of the engineers at Google, at Facebook who are asking to know, know, how does this company make decisions? How, How do these processes work and why do they work that way? And so we've seen more engineers diving in and working alongside our HR team, our compensation team, our recruiting teams to try to figure out how to make these processes better and more transparent. So for example, we've had engineers dive in on our promotion process, defining what it takes to get to the next level and how that process is gonna work. Engineering designed and piloted a a career development process as well where we got rid of our heavyweight annual review process and replaced it with lighter weight check-ins where a manager and an engineer would talk about their career. That's now been rolled out across the whole company. Engineering had a strategic planning process. Engineers are very into planning and strategic planning. We had a a lightweight way to plan by quarter and by, by year. And that has also now been rolled out across the whole business, so we can get a 360 degree view of all the things that are important, the top priorities for HR, for recruiting, for finance. You can see all of that together. Engineers are working on diversity and inclusion. They actually built a backlog of bugs. It's it's literally in our bug tracking software. We have this diversity and inclusion backlog, where we file bugs against our culture, things that we want to work on. And engineers can take those off and work on those as well. And salary transparency is one of our newest things. We're piloting that right now, but we've given engineers more information about how we analyze pay, how we decide what's fair to pay, and also give them a sense of what they might earn if they got promoted to the next level. And that partnership has led to some really beautiful things. I think it's helped us to build a more diverse and inclusive team. When I joined Redfin, I was the only woman on our Seattle engineering team. Today, we have 250 people in technology. 35% of them are women. So this has been a dramatic change in the eight years that I've been at the company. In fact, we actually deprioritized gender diversity two years ago. We don't want to take steps backward, but we wanted to make room to work on other kinds of diversity, on race, ethnicity, disability, and all the rest. And I think one of the reasons we were able to achieve this, it's, it's because of all of these, this new IT approach, where we basically took an engineering approach to ourselves, to our culture. We used it to build a culture that was more collaborative and more inclusive this is incredibly important if you want to build an innovative team. It's not a small thing. It's, it's one of the biggest things. Innovators need to surround themselves with creative and positive people, people who have different backgrounds and different perspectives. You need to build this, this team where everybody can collaborate and work on those things together. So I really feel that by using these new patterns and applying them to your culture, you can build the most innovative team possible. And so now I would like to turn it back over to Sandy for some final thoughts. Thank
0: you, Bridget. Thanks. Can you stay up here for just one second? So, I think Bridget was being just a little bit too modest, and she's already left the stage, but um, she's actually been written up in um, Fast Company and Fortune for the way that she has applied IT business processes to what she's doing across the board, diversity, salary planning, et cetera, as being one of the true innovators in our space. So, please give her another round of applause. So um, these are what we see as part of the patterns and the anti-patterns that you should avoid. Some of them, again, are very technical. Some of them are more culture-oriented, how you approach a problem like training or like that startup culture that we had talked about earlier. So I'm hoping that this was valuable for you, and my big thing here is... um, you know, really to impart some of the learning and the experience to really act like an open API and share what we've learned. Um, And here's my analogy. So a lot of these trends and things are happening very fast. Uh, And if you think about this little puzzle, if you have a lily pad area, and lily pads double in size every day. Think about change, right? Doubling almost every day in size. Um, and if you say on the 60th day the pond is filled with lily pads, on what day was the pond only half covered? It's day 59, right? So, my point here with this analogy, hopefully, is that these changes occur quick. Um, you know, just a couple years ago it was cloud first, now it's containers first or serverless first. These things occur quickly. So, you don't want to get behind the eight ball. You wanna be one of those leaders who is gonna be ahead of it. And it's gonna take you a combination of not just technology, but technology plus culture. You know, all the things that Bridget really epitomized here up here on stage, combining and working for the business from an IT perspective, not just being focused on that IT um, area. So I'm hoping you've got some really good uh, comments and really good suggestions today. Um, I would love for you guys to take a look at some of the other things we have going on around. We've got um, we, we're going to do a whole blog on these patterns and anti-patterns. There'll be more in there just because we don't have time today. We have an insights portal where we've got ex-CIOs of uh, you know Coca-Cola, Dow Jones, who share their thoughts about their journey and what they're seeing as some of these changes. Um, and we'd love for you just to stay engaged with us. You can reach out to Bridget and I via via that. Um, that uh, Twitter handle as well. Um, And then there's a whole set of books out there that you can uh, leverage that are written by AWSers, a lot of ex-CIOs and that sort of thing as well. And so what I'd like to leave you with is, you know, don't overanalyze, just like I did with those pancakes, you know, just get going, you might make a mistake and people are gonna laugh at you like you did at me, but get going, get moving, try it out, experiment with it. Um, Reach out to me at any time if I can help you in any way and make sure that you do uh, our survey today as well because Bridget and I would really like to understand, you know, what we did well that helped you out today, what we could do better as we uh, take this show on the road as well. So thank you so much for your time and your attention and have a super day.